0: making sure. All right, we are jumping in this morning to a new sermon series. We finished Galatians uh, a couple of weeks ago. I will just warning, fair warning in advance, this is going to end up feeling probably a little bit different from what we've done in the past. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, that'll be on page, let me make sure I get it right, page 190. Uh, So Deuteronomy chapter 5, page 190 on the Bibles under the seat in front of you. As I've mentioned before, I try to alternate between New and Old Testaments uh, to make sure we we hear the full scope of God's Word, uh, the whole of God's Word. So having just finished Galatians, we're going to be in the Old Testament for a little while. Uh, But as you may have gathered, I'm really not that creative. So when I approach preaching, I pick a book of Scripture, begin at the beginning, go through to the end, hitting all of the bits in the middle. Because I'm not that creative to come up with all of these different things to do. Um, this series however is going to be a little bit different in the last section of Galatians as we were looking at it Paul was addressing the right use of the law the right use of God's law how the Christian should understand God's law what place the law should have in the life of the Christian since it doesn't have the salvific place that the Judaizers were trying to proclaim for it Since we don't earn salvation by works of the law, what place should it have? How should we understand the law in Christ? We are not now nor were we ever saved by works of the law, but the law is still a part of Scripture, part of God's Word. And as we know from Paul's letter to Timothy, all Scripture... All Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for training in righteousness so that the man of God might be complete. So what do we do with this piece of God's Word, of Scripture? We're going to spend some time over the next few months looking at the law of God, particularly at the Ten Commandments, the summary there of God's law, studying the owner's manual for life, if you will. And before I read, I'm reading from Deuteronomy 5, just the first few verses there. But before I read, let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word. There are many ways that we can go astray mentally as we study the law. So let's pray that the Spirit would superintend his word and protect us. Please stand if you're able while I pray and remain standing as I read from Deuteronomy 5. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word because only in it do we find your truth. And yet our hearts are so perverse that we will twist your truth into a pretzel to make it mean what we want it to mean. So Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray that you would restrain our sin this morning, that you would communicate your truth to us unfiltered, unadulterated, untwisted, that we might see your glory, worship you, and live in response to what you have done pour out your spirit on us, that this word that we read and preach, that this would be glorifying to you alone. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Deuteronomy 5. I'm actually going to read all the way through the end of the commandments, but we're going to focus on the first six verses here. So this is God's word. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, hear, O Israel, the statutes, the rules that I speak in your hearing today. You shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horev. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, all of us who are here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. While I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord God your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. (coughs) Excuse me. On July 24th, 2013, A train carrying 218 people in eight carriages derailed in northwestern Spain, killing 79 people and hospitalizing another 66. Shortly after the wreck, the driver, a man named Garzon, uh, told officials, I can't explain it. I still don't understand how I didn't see. I just don't know. He said the journey was going fine until the train hit a curve. At that point, Garzon said to himself, oh no, the curve, the curve, the curve, I'm not going to make it. Now, despite Garzon's initial confusion and surprise, there's a simple explanation for the crash. Video footage of the event revealed that the train was going as much as 119 miles per hour just before hitting the curve. Now, the train itself was designed to reach speeds up to 130 or even more, uh, even faster. So he was acting well within the design parameters of the train. However, while there are places where such speeds are wholly appropriate on the tracks, 119 miles per hour is more than twice the speed limit for that particular section of the track. For all that the train can go that fast... That part of the track wasn't designed for such speeds. Garzon, who was at that point a 30-year employee of Spain's uh, National Railway Company, simply ignored the boundaries in which those high speeds were to be used. At the end of the day, it wasn't simply the speed that caused the accident. It was the speed combined with the location, a willful rejection of the directives of those who had designed the system. Things were going swimmingly. The train was making great time until it wasn't. Ignoring the design specifications eventually will lead to disaster. Now, hopefully it's obvious where I'm going with this, right? God has designed human beings to function rightly in certain ways, has created the world to function a particular way and not to work in other ways when we ignore how he made us and made the world to function, we may do okay for a little while. But eventually we're going to hit that curve and wreck our lives. In a sense, at least, the law of God is the instruction manual for life as a created being. As I said, over the next couple of months, we're going to be looking at the shape of God's law, particularly what He revealed in the Decalogue, or the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. Uh, But before we can jump into the commands specifically themselves, we've got to set the stage. We've got to prepare the ground, if you will. And to do that, we have to answer some questions. First, what is the foundation of the law? What is the end or the purpose of the law? And what is the use of the law? What use is it in our lives? So the foundation, the end or purpose, and the use of the law. Now first, the foundation. As we see in our passage, there is a, uh, a two-fold context into which the law was given. Uh, both pieces of the context are really necessary for a right understanding of the law itself and a right application of it to us today. The first was that Moses, Moses mentions in Deuteronomy there in verse 2, the Lord God made a covenant with us. Verse 4, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. The first aspect of the foundation of the law that we must keep in mind is the relationship between the lawgiver and the law receivers, the people who are to keep the law, that predate the giving of the law. God doesn't just d- drop disembodied rules and regulations and say, here are the rules, live by them or else. He starts with a covenant agreement, a relationship between himself and the people who are not just any people, but who, whom he has claimed as his own people. Now, to really feel the weight of this, because that's a familiar idea for us, to really feel the weight of this, you have to understand how very different that is from literally every other so-called god in the world at the time. The Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Greco-Roman gods, the Celtic gods, the Norse gods, you name them, all of the other gods are radically different. They are really... All of worship is about what they want or need from you, period. They are capricious, given to suddenly and unaccountably changing themselves, changing their mood or behavior with no warning and no rationality to it. And you get nothing. There's no guarantee that you get any benefit from worshiping those other gods at all. You just kind of hope that the God is feeling kind today and will give you something that you need if you're if you're very lucky into that context Yahweh the Lord our God makes a covenant agreement with his people enters into an agreement to care for them to bless them to provide for their needs not for them to provide for his needs and in fact later When the Israelites, centuries later, when the Israelites get confused about what all those sacrifices are for, because they're used to the context of those other gods where the sacrifices were food for the gods, God is very clear that he doesn't want or need anything from them. This is Psalm 50. He basically says, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you about it. I own everything there is. I don't need anything from you. Far from being a way for us to provide for God, the very structure of the covenant describes his action for us, completely turning on its head their expectations. That seems a strange way to talk about the law, right? Which is very obviously about what we do and what we don't do, right? It's, it's commands. So How does this fit together? What we need to see is this. We have to see what happens first. Before the commands, what happens? What comes about to prompt the commands? Grammatically, because, you know, I'm a nerd and can't help myself. Grammatically, this would be stated as the indicative precedes the imperative. That is, the statement of fact about who God is comes before the command, the imperative, telling us what to do. In fact, the statement of fact comes before and is the basis of the command. God always acts first. God always acts first. Look at verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God did that not as the result of Israel's law keeping, but of his own unprompted choice. Indeed, how could it be of Israel's law keeping? The law hadn't even been given yet. They didn't even have the law to keep when God said, I will redeem you from Egypt. You are my people and I will redeem you from slavery. God always acts first and then we respond to his graceful, gracious and merciful action. The right response being laid out in what we call the law. Now, this is an important thing for us to see because it's so easy for us to get them backwards, to put the cart in front of the horse, as if the caboose could somehow pull the the train engine. Now, it seems clear to us as we read the books of the law, Exodus and Deuteronomy, and particularly Leviticus, it seems obvious that the law was designed to cope with the problem of the sinfulness of humans. God is holy, we are not, and that's a problem. Because God is holy, he cannot even be in the presence of sin without destroying it, so he gave his people the law so that they could be made right before him, so that they could be justified. And when they broke some aspect of it, there were sacrifices laid out that would restore them to a right relationship with God. But the people of God didn't do a very good job keeping the law, and so they were under condemnation really a whole lot of the time. Even got kicked out of the land at one point. And then Jesus comes along and offered a different way to God, the way of grace. For the Jews, the original people of God, of course, the law remains a sufficient means for being right about God, and then there will come a time when they will avail themselves of it. For us as Gentiles, we have Christ, a completely separate path. Thus the law, and indeed the whole Old Testament, we think, is really of only passing interest to us. After all, that's how God will bring the Jews to faith. We have Jesus. We are not under law, but under grace. That's how we think. Indeed, for the better part of the last 100 or 150 years, this has been the most common understanding of the New and Old Testament. But it is fundamentally in error. It is fundamentally wrong. It is a terrible misconception of reality. The law Powerless as it is to change the human heart is incapable of bringing about true restoration in anyone, period. It is incapable of bringing salvation to anyone who has inherited sin or who has themselves sinned. That's everyone, just FYI. Jew or Gentile alike, the law cannot make you right with God, no matter how hard you work to live it out. Cannot do it. But we nevertheless persist. We insist on seeing it as a means of making ourselves right by our effort, by our work to keep the law, making ourselves right with God. Because we miss that God acts first. We take the commandments and rip them out of their context as if they were just disembodied and didn't, you know, perfectly contextless commands. We miss the fact that. That God acts first and that the law is the response to his saving action. When God states in verse 6, as he does in Exodus 22, the other enumeration of the law, when God states that he brought Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery, it is a statement about his own character. The whole of the Exodus and wilderness wanderings of Israel is summarized in this one sentence in this one description of who God is and how he interacts with his people. The statement of God's care for his people is the basis for the whole law. This is who I am, God says. Therefore, here's how you respond to what I have done for you. Even in the Old Testament, even before Jesus came, living out the law was the response of faith to the work of God saving them. It was and it remains the response of faith to the work that God has already accomplished. Christian, because God redeemed you from slavery to sin, because he has made us right and made us righteous in his sight at great cost, therefore, Because he did that, therefore we respond by obedience to the law. We do not, we do not, and I cannot emphasize this enough, we do not obey so that we will be right with God. We obey because we are already right with God. The indicative always precedes the imperative. The whole of God's relationship with humanity can be summarized by saying, God acts for us first, and then we respond. We cannot prompt Him to any action. We cannot demand anything from Him as if we had overpaid something and now He owed us. Instead, we respond to what He has done. We respond to what He has accomplished for us and in us. It is a response of joy to His completed action on the cross. Not a means of twisting God's arm to get Him to do what I think is best. Or what I want Him to do. It is not some sort of cosmic point system. Whereby you accrue some Christian points by doing the right things. And maybe lose Christian points when you do the wrong things. And the goal is just to have more points when you die than you've lost. And then, you know, he who has the most points. No. The minimum necessary, if you're going to live by the law, the minimum necessary is all the points. Never lose a point ever even once. Gain every point that it is humanly possible to get, period, without exception. That's the standard. It's perfection. We must understand the law as a response to the reality of Christ's purchase of eternity for us at great cost to him and no cost to us. Not the cause of that. Okay, so that leaves us with a question. If being made right with God is what prompts our obedience to the law, as opposed to being made right being the result of our obedience to the law, what then is the purpose? What is the end goal that we're aiming at of the law what goal is aimed at by giving us the law and i think it's twofold the first should be obvious it is the primary reason that god does anything if if the question is asked at any point anywhere any anytime in scripture or elsewhere why did god do this the first answer should always be to glorify himself that is god's first purpose in everything always period the first purpose for which God does anything is to demonstrate His own glory. The law itself, and particularly the moral law of the Ten Commandments, is a summary of the character of God. As such, those commandments reveal the glory of the God who defines these traits. and they prompt us to glorify Him, to worship Him because of those characteristics. These specific laws are not random or chosen out of left field just for the sake of having a law. They summarize the character and nature of God Himself. When God commands us, do not commit adultery. He is, in that moment, telling us that His character is faithfulness to His bride. That He will not throw her over in favor of another, a younger or a prettier or whatever. That God will be faithful to His bride no matter what she does. And praise the Lord for it. Amen. When God commands us, do not bear false witness, He tells us that He defines truth. That truth defines Him. That He is truth. And in Him is no falseness at all. That He is trustworthy. That all He tells us is true. In His being, He is the definition of of goodness, and of righteousness. In studying and obeying His commands in response to His faithfulness, we learn more about who He is, about His character. And as we learn more about Him and see His character more clearly, we are made more like Him, made more in His likeness. And here's where we get, tend to get a little confused and start to run off the rails a little bit, so pay attention, listen close. Being made right with God, being made righteous, prompts us or drives our obedience. But our obedience results in our holiness. That seems like a circle, circular logic there, doesn't it? Being made right with God prompts our obedience. Our obedience results in holiness. That's confusing. Let me maybe say that another way. Say the same thing another way. Justification prompts our obedience. Our obedience... Is the substance of our sanctification. Justification, which is the act of God, a declaration by Him that we as Christians are just, are right in His sight, a legal declaration. Our justification prompts, drives our obedience. Our obedience is itself the substance of our sanctification, the motivating force. For our obedience, which is itself the substance of our sanctification. Now, before you get to pitchforks out, because I know some of you are you know, looking at me a little sideways, don't hear what I'm not saying. I've said it before, quoting the Shorter Catechism, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. There is a sense in which, Sanctification is wholly and completely a work of the Spirit of God, applying grace to us, to make us more and more in His own image. It is His work in us. But where do we find the image of God, the character of God laid out? It is in the law, in the commandments. This is where His law is made plain. His His character, excuse me, is made plain. The more he works in us to apply the grace purchased on the cross for us, the more our lives will be characterized by his character. The more our lives will be shaped by his law. Sanctification is the process of becoming in reality what you were declared to be in justification. Justification is a legal declaration once and done. The judge before whom all must stand has said, I find you righteous. But the reality is our lives don't match that declaration. And so we spend the rest of the time of our entire lives from the point where we have that declaration made over us until we go to be with him or he returns Growing in righteousness, becoming more and more righteous as he declared us to be. That is the process of sanctification. It is his work and it is our work at the same time, depending on what angle you're looking at it from. The more you obey, the more you bear his image more clearly. As you bear his image more clearly, he will receive greater glory, transforming one who was a rebel, one who hated God and everything about him. That's, you know, us. Excluding nobody. He transforms that rebel into one who is a son. Who is more and more perfectly reflecting the glorious goodness of our God. The image of our Savior. Transforming us into a beloved child, well pleasing to him. As I said, there's a sense in which that's entirely the work of God. That is entirely the Holy Spirit applying grace to you. But there's also a sense in terms of our experience of it where we have to discipline ourselves, where we have to intentionally pursue faithfulness. That's only going to happen if the Spirit's at work. But from our perspective, it feels like pursuit of righteousness. It feels like dying to self. Both and. How does that actually work, though? What what does it look like? What what use is the law to us in our lives? How does the law function in the world? And we're going to talk more about these particular concepts as we go through this whole series. But at the end of the day, briefly, the theologians have identified three uses of the law in the lives of humanity. The first two are applicable across the board, believers and non-Christians alike without exception, every human being who has ever lived, these two uses apply to to everybody. The third use applies specifically and particularly to Christians. We'll come back to that one in a second. For humans, all humans, believer and non-believer alike, the law serves as a schoolmaster or a mirror. As I've said, the law is an expression of the character of God, and as such, it teaches us, it trains us to understand who God is. but it also reveals our character because in the light of God's perfection, we cannot help but be revealed in our abject imperfection, our complete failure to measure up. It teaches us not only who God is, but also who we are before Him because we don't come close to measuring up to the standard set by His character. As we confessed earlier, we have failed to keep every law. In every particular, we have missed, we have missed the mark. We have broken every command of God. Because our sinful nature is so perverse, the knowledge of God's righteousness actually prompts greater unrighteousness in us. Paul teaches us in Romans that through the law comes knowledge of sin, that if the law had not told him not to covet, that he would not have even known what coveting was, but his sinful nature learned what covetousness was through the law and then abounded, exploded like weeds in covetousness. Now, we're familiar with that response, or at least I am. Maybe it's just me. But when I'm told not to do something, what happens? You want me not to do that? Fine, I'm going to do it twice as hard. Again, maybe that's just me. The law brings knowledge of sin, and with it brings increase of sin. It teaches us who God is and who we are in relation to Him, and with that knowledge it teaches us our need for a Savior, our need for Christ, because hearing the law makes sin increase, which means that there is no way in the world that we're ever going to overcome and be righteous by our own strength, because the law just makes us worse. Just makes us more sinful. The law which is good in itself drives sin in me to make me worse. The law cannot bring holiness to one who is unholy. And so I desperately need a Savior. I need Christ to die in my place on the cross to purge all of my sin. I need Christ to live perfectly for me to impute to me his perfect record of righteousness, which I could never get close to. The law is a schoolmaster teaching us about God and ourselves. But second, the law is a curb, and again, this, this applies to all people everywhere. Even in unbelievers, the law restrains sin through the threat and application of punishment. The law can't change hearts but it can, to an extent anyway, it can change behavior. When the kids were littler, uh, they, they would see the attractiveness of the wall sockets, and I couldn't, by command, change their hearts so that they wouldn't be attracted to the wall socket anymore, but I could give them dire warnings of what would happen if they did touch the wall sockets and somehow, by that, change their behavior so that they wouldn't Stick the knife in the wall socket. Their hearts didn't change, but their behavior did. And that's good because playing with the socket's going to hurt a lot, right? Those of you who've done that know how that works. In the same way, the fact that there are punishments in place for breaking the law, the fact that the law exists at all, restrains many, even most people, from doing what would otherwise be both Very bad for themselves and very bad for the community at large. Their hearts haven't changed. Their hearts have not been changed, but their behavior has. And as far as that goes, to an extent anyway, that's good because engaging in that behavior, which is prohibited in the law, will seriously damage us. God didn't give us the law to be just random. He gave it to us because that is what is best for us, and breaking the law is bad for us. The law is a curb to sin, a guardrail, guiding people away from sin and toward right behavior, whether their heart has been changed or not. As I said, those first two uses apply to believer and unbeliever equally. The law both teaches and restrains believer and non-believer alike. The third use, however is more fundamentally primarily for Christians. The law is a guide showing us how we are to live in response to the grace of Christ. The moral standards of the law provide guidance for believers as we seek to live in humble gratitude for the grace that God has lavished on us. This is exactly the point where we have to remember the order of indicative and imperative. If we get the imperative first, we'll make shipwreck. We'll wreck the train of our lives. We have to remember that the imperative, God's action always comes first. And the commands are the response to God's action. Christ died in our place on the cross. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. We have been given these magnificent, glorious, gracious realities as Christians. We respond by seeking to please the Lord in obeying His law, in living out the precepts of His character enumerated in the law. The indicative always precedes the imperative. The statement always comes before the command And because it it does, we can see that the law is fundamentally a response to what God has already done for us. It is the response of the person redeemed by the blood of Christ who longs to please her faithful Savior. Not so that God will love her. Of course not. Indeed, he has already demonstrated his love for us in the most conclusive way possible. Instead, we long to please our Savior, not so that he will love us, but because he already does. This is why the psalmist can lavish praise on the law. Psalm 119, if you don't know already, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm and it's not close. And the whole thing is a, just a worship song of praise to the law of God. To the God of the law. The entirety of the song is glorifying the law of God. He says, I delight in your law, O Lord. And a heart that delights in the law is only possible when we see the merciful and gracious heart of God behind it and filling it. Because delighting in Him, as we delight in the Lord, we also delight in the law that He has given for our good. The law which clearly lays out his own character. My prayer, as we wade into this study of God's law, my prayer is that we will see God more clearly. That we will behold Him face to face as the Israelites did. That it will lead us to repentance and will lead us to faithful service of our Lord. None of that's going to happen apart from the grace of God, apart from the Holy Spirit at work. But we trust that God works through His Word and through His law, that we will respond to the grace of God in imitation of His perfect character. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. So let us, flatter is the wrong word here, but let us imitate our Lord. Let us walk in faithfulness, obeying His law, as we work through this study of God's commands. Let us see the character of God and delight let's pray Lord Jesus we thank you for your grace We thank you for your word to us for your law we pray that you would open our eyes to see your character your mercy your grace your love your truth your faithfulness your justice that we would see all of you in your law would delight in you And would delight to imitate you. Fill us with your spirit that we may be found pleasing in your sight. Give us your grace for apart from your grace and your spirit at work in us, we will fail every time. We will rebel every time. We will run from your righteousness and your truth. And we long to be with you. So give us your spirit Make our hearts right with you as you've promised to do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.